So our focus is going to be Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And as you dive into this text, it can, it can sound really complicated really quickly. Um, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It, it, gets, it, it gets a little intimidating, in my opinion. And so I wanted to uh, kind of paint a little picture for you before we dive into the text and really start unpacking it. Here at Crosspoint Fellowship... We have what's called a membership covenant. And the membership covenant is um, a document that we formed after preaching through a series on what the Bible says the church is supposed to be. So Pastor Ben preached through a series on what the church is supposed to be. And what we did was we took and we formed a membership covenant. So week in and week out, we gather and we worship together, corporate worship as a people who belong to God, okay? So I want you to picture the setting. It's not hard to picture because you're sitting in it, okay? So we gather week in and week out to worship, and as we gather, sometimes we have visitors. Sometimes those visitors are professing believers. Sometimes those visitors are not professing believers. So we have that going on, and we have this membership covenant, and one of the first things that we try to do is to get into our visitors' hands that membership covenant, if you go to this kiosk, if you've done that before, one of the first things you do, have you read our membership covenant yet? If some of you who are visiting join us at Crosspoint Connect after the service, we're going to say, hey, have you gotten the membership covenant yet? And we've got a folder with some other information as well. Why? Why do we do that? The reason we do that is because it makes things clear up front about our history, about our identity, and about our direction as a church and what we deem important, and what we prioritize, and how we're going to spend our time and our resources. It helps you to get a, an inside look into what's going on here, what's been going on here, and what is going to go on here. So we try to get that into your hands. More specifically, it says what God has done, and what we are called to do in response. I need you to hear that this morning as we get going. We get that into your hands because it explains what God has done, And then what we are doing in response as a church trying to be obedient to our Lord. This is very similar to the setting in in Romans. Okay? So the the Roman church is meeting together. They're a young church. There's a lot of new people that are together in a number of ways. And um, I'm going to take a minute to pray. You all okay with that? I mean, clearly we have a situation over there. And um, so I'm going to pray for Sarah. Sarah. and, and then we're going to move on. Is that okay? Can we do that? Will y'all pray with me as I pray? Lord, we pray for Sarah right now as, uh, as we can see that um, she's struggling uh, with, with her seizures. And, and I'm thankful for her dog that, um, that helped her to know uh, what was going on. And I just pray that you would keep her safe, um, that they would tend to her, that they would uh, be able to get her exactly what she needs. Um, I'm also thankful for Josh and his attentiveness as a husband and to be able to, uh, to know what to do when this happens. So I pray that you would allow them to, to calm, and uh, I pray that you would keep her safe. We love you, Lord. We thank you that we can bring such things to you, even in the middle of a sermon, Lord. Uh, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all don't have to worry about it. It's being taken good, good care of, I promise. So our setting this morning... In the church in Rome, these Jews and these Gentiles are gathering together, and not everyone's on the same page. And so there has to be a way for them to kind of get on the same page, and that's what we do 
with our membership covenant. We try to give that to you to get everyone on the same page so it's clear about our vision and our goals and our direction and how we're going to spend our time. So the similar setting in Romans, we, we can kind of see what's going on right around here and understand it. And, he, and here's what I'm talking about. Usually the Jews would gather together for worship, but Jesus has opened up a way to God for everyone who would put their faith in him. So usually when they gathered for, for worship, like we're gathering, it would be only the Jews, but because of what Jesus has done, now there's a bunch of people who aren't Jews, who are Gentiles, who are gathering together in that worship. So as the Jews gather, some Gentiles are now gathering with them. And what we have to understand, what Paul is addressing here, is something that is completely unprecedented. This has never happened before. Jews and Gentiles didn't worship together. They didn't do much of anything together because their lives were completely different. And so this is an unprecedented event that is happening. Up to this point, the Jews were God's special people. And here I want to kind of use about five or six sentences to sum up a history that's really important. We have our youngest kids in here. Kids, I want to say this in a way that y'all can understand this, and you've probably already learned about it in your classes and through your gospel project curriculum. Thousands of years before this moment, God saved Israel from Egypt. Egypt was enslaving Israel for hundreds of years. There were literally entire generations that were born in slavery and died in slavery. And through plagues and miraculous acts, God drew Israel out of Egypt, making them his special people. So when you asked an Israelite in this setting, when they got saved, so if, you, if they were like in this kind of a setting, but in Rome, and you say, hey, when did you get saved? They would have said, when God brought us out of Egypt. They viewed their story as the story of a people. It wasn't like super individualistic. It was like, when did you get saved? Well, I got saved when God drew my people, our people, out of Egypt. That's my story. It may have happened thousands of years ago at this point. But that's, that's when I got saved, is when God made us his. When God said, you belong to me. And as those who belong to God, God led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness and gave them the law. So we know about the Ten Commandments, and those are the, we call them the, you know, the big ten that, that were given to Moses. But then there's also a lot of other law, and it makes up the first five books of our Bible. Um, all of the details of how everything would take place for how God's people would worship him. The law was the way that God's people would live out his will. How they would know what is pleasing to God and how they would know what is not pleasing to God because they belong to God. So in our verses this morning, Paul is explaining to the Jews and the Gentiles what God has done and what we should do as the church. But in a way, everyone in this church that Paul's addressing is a new member. So rather than just having some visitors, it's sort of like everyone's a visitor. And there's a lot of change going on, and there's a lot of things that are different. And so Paul has to explain this history that's completely foreign to the Gentiles, and then he has to explain how the law works now because it doesn't work the same way. And Jesus has changed a number of things, and faith is of utmost importance, but not everyone's buying into that quite yet. And that is our setting for these verses this morning. Everything has changed because of Jesus and it brings us to our focus in 12 through 16. Let's read that together. Look at Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, you might be thinking, well, how does that work? Well, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. As I read that, I want you all to remember and keep in mind that Paul is proving a point he made back in Romans 1. Back in Romans 1, Paul said, I want to make the main point of my letter, and then I'm going to use at least chapter 1, verse 18 through 320 to make my point. It's like when you say something to your children, and then you make your point, and then you want to explain why that's true. You're bringing the evidence and the facts for why that's true. And so Paul's big point that he made back in Romans 1 is, everybody needs Jesus. Okay, Something we can all agree on as we sit here this morning, something that's not hard to remember, something that if you're taking notes, you could write it in your notes, Everybody needs Jesus. And so Paul is, has made that point, and now he's making the case for his statement. Many of the Jews weren't convinced that they needed Jesus for salvation because they were saved when they were brought out of Egypt. So when Paul says, in Christ alone, you will find salvation, the Jew would have some confusion by saying, no, we were saved when we were brought out of Egypt. And then the Gentiles... We're completely in the dark on what that even meant, as Scripture tells us in another place that they were strangers and aliens to the covenants that God had made with Israel. Do you see how crazy this setting is? They're completely different, and probably when a Gentile would talk to a fellow Jew who is now in the church, the Gentile would be like, hey, how do I get saved? And the, the Jew would probably say, well, you need the law. Well, how does that work? I've never heard that. And so you've got the, this just sort of meshing of worlds that is very, very different. Paul is using very particular words in a very particular way in this section to help explain what it all means. So let's unpack this. First, we find that there are two groups of people in all of the world. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I mean, you might be sitting here thinking, hey, I'm a Christian. It is 2017. Why do we have to talk about the law? I mean, just that two verses there are kind of tiring. The law, the law, the law. What, what about old Jewish law? How does that affect me? Romans says that God spoke to Israel in a way that it affects the entire world for all of time. Israel was God's chosen people, and the way that he moved with them, the way that he revealed himself to them, helps us to understand who we are in Christ as those who belong to God. So don't check out. Don't say to yourself, ooh, that, that, that's, that's so, I don't get it. It's so far, long, so far ago. It is very, very important to who we are now and how we move now as those who belong to God. So there's these two groups of people that we find in this verse. First, we find that... Um, there is a group called the Jews. The Jews in this verse have been given God's law by God. These are the ones who are called under the law. So this first group is Jews, and they're under the law because they have heard the law when they gathered for worship. So the same way that you gather for worship today to hear a sermon preached from the word of God, 
They would gather and they would actually read aloud. Not everyone had Bibles like you have this morning. So they would read the law aloud. So they, that's why they were called hearers of the law. If you go to a synagogue today, they're going to read the law out loud and you're going to hear it. And by hearing it, you're going to know what is pleasing to God and what is not pleasing to God. So the first group is the hearers of the law under the law known as Jews. The next group is everyone else who is not a Jew. So these are the two groups. Everyone else who is not a Jew, who did not grow up hearing the law, they're known as Gentiles. The Gentiles have been without the law. So you might think, well, they have nothing in common, right? But here's what they have in common. Everyone has sinned. Whether they have the law or they don't have the law, what they have in common is everyone has sinned. They have all sinned, some with the law and some without the law. Paul explains this in the next verse, in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who are justified. He explains this by saying, it's not enough to just hear it. As we gather in this important setting, it is not enough for you to just hear it. There has to be more to it than just hearing it. Why? Because in order to be justified before God, you actually have to do the law perfectly. That's what Paul's explaining here. So anytime you receive like a set of guidelines or a set of rules, you might think, okay, we got a little bit of margin here. And sometimes if you're, if, if, if you don't, if you're not a, if you don't really like rules, you're more of a small government kind of person, you might be like, okay, where can I push the envelope on these rules? Where can I, you know, what can I get away with? It says uh, I have to wear a collared shirt, but like, like what kind of collar? Like all shirts have collars, you know? Like you could, you could kind of figure out a way to push the, the, the rule or push the law. The, the issue with this law, though, is that th there's no margin. No margin. You can't push the envelope. There's no envelope to be pushed. For you to be justified before God, you have to obey the law perfectly. But over the years, the Jews had lightened the requirement when there was no lightning to be had. And what they had done over the years is they said, you know what, you don't have to do it perfectly. We belong to God. We're saved. We're on the team. And so what happens is we, we then um, just have to, you know, we have to have the intention to obey the law. Do you think like that? Like I know Jesus, what Jesus tells me to do, and I might not do all of it. I might do the opposite of some of it. But as long as in general I intend to do it, then that's going to be cool. As long as I have an intention to obey. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not okay because the only ones who are justified are the ones who do the law perfectly. So they had lightened a requirement that should have never been lightened. And so you can imagine when the Gentile in that text says to the fellow Jew next to him, who's now a fellow Christian, there's neither Jew nor Gentile in this Christian church, there's just those who are in Christ. When the Gentile looks at the Jew and says, so uh, this law thing that I'm supposed to be saved by, how does that work? You could almost see that Jewish person looking at the Gentile person and saying, well, I mean, you don't have to do it all. I mean, you, just, you have to have the intention. So you'll hear it. You need to have it, just a general intention that you're going to obey it. So that created a bit of a mess and a bit of confusion, which Paul is clarifying here. So I said justified. The word says justified, but the doers of the law are those who will be justified. So what is that? What does it mean to be justified? Well, the need to be justified implies the presence of guilt. The need to be justified implies that something has been done that is not okay and there is guilt. And that guilt has to be cleared for you to be justified. 
We are guilty before God because of our sin. And what Paul is saying in this verse is we are guilty before God because of our sin, every one of us, whether you grew up hearing the law or not. It's a big statement. The Jews would hear it in one way and the Gentiles would hear it in another way. And we got to climb into the context to get it. He's saying every one of us has sinned and it doesn't matter whether you had the law or not. So the doers of the law, those who can do the law perfectly are the ones who will be justified. The only ones whose guilt is removed. The only ones who will be given a right standing before God. If you're paying attention, that doesn't sound fair. If you're paying attention, that doesn't sound fair because the Jews had the law and the Gentiles didn't. So he's looking at this group saying, it's only those who do the law who will be saved. And you've got this whole group of Gentiles saying, what is the law? You're saying, I'm not, I have no salvation. Nothing to do about this sin I'm all of a sudden convicted about. And you're saying, the only way I can be saved is if I do the law. Well, all these people over here, they grew up hearing it every generation for generation after generation. They know it. They memorize it. By the time they're teenagers, they've memorized almost all five books of the law. And he's saying, and these Gentiles are saying, but I can only be saved if I do that. I don't even know what the rules are. It feels unfair. That's a double standard, right? It's a double standard. It's an injustice. How can you say that one is only made right before God by doing the law if not everyone has heard the law? How can that be? That's like telling one of your children a rule and then punishing the other child who hasn't heard the rule but breaks it. And if you've ever done that with your children, you will quickly hear about the injustice that you have been a part of. I didn't know that. I didn't know. You can't all be accountable to that. It's a double standard, Father. You preached about it on Sunday. (laughs) How can that be right in a chapter that clearly despises hypocrisy and double standards? The last two weeks, we have looked at the issue of the Jews looking at the Gentiles and saying, you can't do that, but I can. They're all practicing the same things. That's why they're all sinners, because they're all practicing the same sin. Hypocrisy, double standards. How could Paul practice, how can Paul sound and look as though he's promoting a double standard in these couple of verses? And that's why you always keep reading. Look at verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they have a law to themselves. Apparently, there's another law here. Or is it the same law in a different way? A law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is revealing something quite remarkable right here. You have to see it. It will change the way you view lost people from here on out. It will change the way you view your own heart from here on out. Paul is revealing something quite remarkable. For the Jews, they have order and they have standards in their culture. They have order, they have good rule in their culture and standards because of the law. But if you're watching, those outside of the Jewish covenant still have order and standards. Paul's addressing that here. 
Kind of like this morning, Christians all over are gathered for corporate worship. But it isn't like everyone who is at Walmart is committing murder, clubbing each other over the head, and stealing each other's stuff. I don't want to imply that everyone at Walmart must be an unbeliever because they're not in church right this moment. Maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> but do you realize, like, like, we don't walk around saying, you know, only the Christians follow along. Only the Christians help people. Only the Christians do good stuff. We do. You better believe we are about good work. But, but why do sometimes people who don't know Jesus or who don't have the law, or why would these Gentiles in particular who didn't grow up as Jews who were under the law and hearing the law, why do they sometimes do what's right? Why do they sometimes do something that we would just call good? Have you ever wondered that? you ever wonder why that is? Have you ever wondered why the world is still standing? I mean, this has been an insane three weeks since we started Romans 2. We've had an eclipse. We've had uh, racially charged um, riots. People have died because of it. We have flooding. We have people who are looting and breaking into houses now down there. I mean, have you ever just sat and wondered? And, I mean, you see a crazy guy across on the other side of the world who has nuclear arsenals that he's like, He's just like kind of slinging around like, hey, I'm going to bomb Guam or whatever it might be. Like when you, when you look at that stuff, when you look at terrorism, do you ever just wonder, how did we make it this far? How in the world did we get to 2017? And sometimes in your moments of despair, you might think, I, I don't think we'll ever get to 2018. We don't know. We know that Jesus will become like a, like a thief in the night when he returns, but, but we do know how we have gotten this far. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We make the most of every day. But we do know how we've gotten to where we are. If you've ever wondered about that, Paul's talking about it. Why do lost people still get married and have babies? Why is it never normal or acceptable to lie, cheat, and steal? But rather those who do or rather those who say it is normal would only be proven wrong by the majority who says, no, that's not okay. Believers are not. Why is that? It isn't only Christians who are going to help hurricane victims this weekend. There's a lot of lost people that are going to help hurricane victims this weekend. Why is that? Why do atheists and agnostics still foster and adopt? Why is that burden on their hearts? Paul's answer is found in these verses. Because God has done an amazing work in every heart. Take this in with me. Why do, why do non-believers do these good things? Because God has written his law on their hearts. It wasn't that they didn't have the law. They just had it in a different way. They couldn't hear it. They weren't necessarily under it like the Jews. But these Gentiles had a law because their creator put one on their hearts. And as this work of the law is written on their hearts, instinctively telling them what is right, what is wrong, it has an effect on their consciences, which sometimes condemns them and sometimes excuses them. There are lots of lost people who have had that moment where, like, I shouldn't have done that. They don't get credit for that. God gets credit for that. He put a law on their hearts, convicting, and, and it says their consciences bear witness and conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. Accuse or excuse them. Which brings us to our last verse, verse 16. 
on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is that day of judgment that we learned about over the last couple weeks. There is a time where God will come back and we will all be judged. There's a time that God will judge everyone, and according to this verse, it's not just our actions that matter, but our motives, the secrets of the hearts of men. So he's not just going to say, okay, good, you're doing the right thing, but it's even, the bar's even raised and that it's not a matter of just doing the right thing, but you have to do it with the right motive. He'll judge the secrets of men by Christ. He looks at what we're doing and considers the heart that is motivated. So that's our text for this morning. Or to piggyback on the previous weeks, God is fair and just and impartial and righteous, so he judges everyone. God is fair, just, impartial, and righteous, so God judges everyone by their works. And what we could add to that this week is that God is fair, God is just, and God is righteous because he judges everyone by their works according to the law that they had as they heard it and sat under it as Jews or the law that they have in their hearts as Gentiles. God is a good judge. So those are our focus verses for the morning. That's the text. That's what we've got this morning. But I have to tell you, there's a lot more to the story. I can't just stop right there and say, okay, y'all have a nice day. Because Romans goes on. And and I can't end any of these little series on Romans that I get to do from time to time without explaining the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is that as God looks at the works and looks at the motive in the hearts of each individual, there is none who does good works with only pure and holy motives. There is not one. God has the ability to look into your heart and every one of these people's hearts and the hearts of everyone who will come. And the thing that everyone has in common is that God looks and there is not one heart that does good works with pure and holy motives. Not one. There's none who fulfills all of the law perfectly. It's not okay to just have an intention to obey. Our guilt came through the first human being that was created, Adam. This is the rest of the story. And that guilt could only be cleared through a life that was lived perfectly, doing every good work with only holy and pure motives. Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5.12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 6.23 describes this by saying the wages of sin is death. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I haven't done that bad. This says you have sinned and any sin has earned one wage. And that wage is death. You go to a job, you do work, you get paid, right? you get what you deserve, or or else it's an injustice, right? And so what Paul's saying here is, in life, when you sin, you get judgment. 
and wrath, and you get separated from God because all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, and you get death. The wages of sin is death, and it's the wage that everyone sitting here this morning has earned. Everyone who has ever walked the earth before, everyone who will walk the earth later, all will earn the same wage, and that wage is death. Because we sin, the wage we earn is death, and the only way to be saved from that death is to live perfectly. But look at verses 15 through 17 in Romans 5. I want you to like underline and pay attention every time you hear the word free gift. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only reason that you don't leave here this morning completely devastated. If not for Christ, I would have to end the sermon by saying, so you've all sinned and you all deserve death. Period. You can't work your way out of it. It's an impossibility. The law was a tutor over over a thousand years to help us to understand that. But there's this free gift. You Hopefully, you might be thinking, how do I get the free gift? And there's some really good news about how to get a free gift. I don't want to spoil it, but we'll get to it in a minute. But it's good. So what is the free gift, first of all? It sounds like that's the only way we can be saved. It sounds like that's the only way that somehow our life is counted as perfectly righteous. How do I get that free gift? And what is the free gift? Let's consider what it is before we consider how to get it. First, this free gift is this. Here's the gift. You might be thinking, is it justification? What are these words? Is it, is it fulfillment of law? Is it good? Is it, is it a pass? Is it a hall pass? Do I get excused? Is it swept under the rug? What is the gift? And the gift is this. Jesus' righteousness. It's so crazy to get to say something to you that I know is better than anything you've ever heard. The free gift is Jesus' righteousness. You could not achieve it on your own. You cannot achieve it on your own. You will not achieve it on your own. Try as you may. The law that you hear or the law in your heart only condemns you. It tells you how you can be saved, but it does not give you everything you need to fulfill that law perfectly. Rather, it reveals that there is only one man who fulfilled it perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ alone is perfectly righteousness. This is why the free gift is so important, and you receive it through faith. As you confess your sins, and you repent, and you turn from your sins, and you place your faith in Christ... Christ says, here is the gift of my righteousness. Do you hear that? Kiddos, do you all hear that? I hear you. Do you hear that? That's good news. As you put your faith in Jesus and you confess your sins and you repent and turn from those sins, Jesus says, well done. 
Here is my righteousness. And you know what you can do with this righteousness? You take it to my Father. And with it, your guilt is clear. No guilt. Not even an ounce. You are free from the bondage of sin. You are free from eternal condemnation. So you do that, and I do this. Here's my righteousness. My Father will love it when he sees it. Because when he judges your heart, he'll know it's there. With it, you'll be justified before God and counted perfect. So here's our four application points for the morning. The first one's real clear. First and foremost, if you have not received the free gift, I urge you to receive it today. Like We don't have altar calls regularly here, but I'm like this close. I'm looking at this going, are you serious? If there's anyone here who has not received this free gift, you've just heard the best news you'll ever hear. And if you've not received it, I urge you to receive it today. The free gift of Christ's righteousness is the only way that you escape death. If you search your heart, if you search your heart, I guarantee there will be something there to help you understand this. I've already seen it promised in the text this morning. God wrote something on your heart to make you feel the way you feel right now. And the good thing about a free gift is this. I said I was going to get to it, and I'm getting to it. The good thing about a free gift, how do I get that? You just receive it. That's the great thing about a free gift. I recently had someone give something to me, and it was awkward. It was like something cool, something I liked. Like, hey, man, here you go. I got an extra one of those. What do I do? You just, you just take it. What? This is too cool, man. I've always wanted one of these. Well, I mean, can I do something? No, 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 no. You can't do anything. Just take it. How do, I'm holding the free gift. How do I get this free gift? You already have it. Because you received it. But in Christ, you receive it by faith. You place your faith in him. You trust him to be the righteousness that you cannot be. You trust him to fulfill the law in the way that you cannot fulfill it. You trust him to pay the penalty for your sins that you cannot pay on your own. It's an old camp song we used to sing. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt he could not pay. We needed someone to wash our sins away. Wax on, wax off. Y'all know that camp song? (laughs) That's what this verse is saying. It's deeply, profoundly, theologically, doctrinally correct, that silly song. So if you have not received that gift, receive it today by faith. I would love to meet you down here and talk to you afterwards if that's who you are today. The second application is this. If you have received that free gift, worship God as a good judge. Worship God as a good judge. That may be kind of a foreign concept to some of us. Honestly, last week may be the first time or one of the first times that I consciously looked to God as a perfect judge and praised him for it. Generally, Talk about God's judgment makes us uncomfortable. We've had three weeks in judgment, and as I'm preaching, I'm like, oh my gosh, all I can think is the hellfire and brimstone, we're going to scare you into heaven. And, it's un- and the whole reason people get scared into heaven, which that's not how it works, I think we just clearly outlined you don't get scared into heaven, is, is because it's unsettling. The reality of God's judgment is so, much, so far beyond anything within our control that it can be unsettling. One pastor said it this way, there's something wrong with our faith if we cannot sing praises to God 
not only as our loving Father, but also as the righteous judge of all the earth. Do you despise God when you realize he will judge everyone who has not put their faith in Christ? Or can you praise him? Can you praise him for what we've seen this morning? Can you praise him for the work that he's done in the hearts of every man and woman? Do you think it's unfair? Or can you praise him for being the only one who's perfectly fair? Do you think it's unjust that some people will get, pray, get, get um, um, condemned to eternal death because they have not received Christ? Do you think that's not fair? Because I'll tell you what, you live in a culture that says that is not fair. And for you to stand firmly in what is true, you have to be able to praise God for being a good judge. So don't just praise him for being a good father, which he is. Also praise him for being a good judge. Third, if you have received that free gift, be a hearer and doer of the word. Do not skate in and out of here, week in and week out. Man, that was awesome. I can't wait till next week without doing anything with what you've heard. Because God makes it clear. It's not enough to just hear it. You have to do it. And if you think, oh, wait, some of y'all are rule, rule pushers, right? Small government people, right? Some of y'all are like, no, nah, that was Old Testament. No, nah, that was the law. It was you had to hear and do the law. That, that was, I caught you, pastor. I don't really have, I don't have to do that. I just have to maybe have the intention to do it. Is that what you're thinking? Because there were others who thought that. So to be clear, that translated to the New Testament, but it translated a little bit differently. Turn to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. If we ask the question, is it important to do what we hear? This is a sermon from Jesus, the guy who offers you the gift of his righteousness. And Jesus says in 724, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I was watching the news on some of these who are in the path of the hurricane this week. And there was a neighborhood of houses that some of them had been elevated and put on rock. And others were in the process of being elevated and put on rock because they knew the floodwaters were coming. They were literally, people were taking their entire house and jacking it up to get it out of the floodwater. And in order to keep it stable, they had to put it on solid rock. And you literally had an example of what was happening here where they interviewed one family who was like, Oh, man, I'm so glad we built our house on something stable and solid because when this flood comes, my house will remain. And then they turned to the people next door that they just hadn't gotten to it yet. All the, all the equipment's there. They thought about it, but they haven't done it. And those people were weeping, saying, my house is going to be destroyed. The flood is going to obliterate everything. All the stuff that's important becomes nothing. Not just, it's not unimportant, it becomes nothing because it gets obliterated by the flood. It was a, a stark example of what's being said here. What this is saying is that being a doer of the word brings stability. 
and it guards against deception. It brings stability literally to your household. It brings stability to your life because you're on a firm foundation when you hear and when you do what it says. But when you only hear what it says and don't do it, you are wildly unstable. So the encouragement this morning is to be hearers and doers of the word. You can turn to James if you would like. You don't have to. It'll be our last place we turn. But James 1 says essentially the same thing like this in 122. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You're deceived if you think it's okay to just hear it and maybe have an intention to do it but not actually do it. Kiddos, what would your parents do if they told you something you need to do and you said, I hear, I hear you, I hear you, mom and dad, and you go back to playing? Have you all ever done that? I might know five kids who have. Yeah, I hear you. Yep, good idea, mom. I should put my shoes up. Yes. And then go back to playing. Is mom okay with the shoes still being on the ground? That's how it is with our God, kiddos. He says this is what you should do. And you don't need to grow up thinking, oh, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll listen to him the way I listen to mom and dad. Actually, the reason you're called by God to obey your mom and dad is because it helps you to listen to your God. Pastor Ben is going to start next week in Ephesians on a home series, which will explain that more thoroughly on how the home is a place where we grow in our faith and it helps us to know how to move with God. So kids, when your parents tell you to do something, you need to not just hear it, but you also need to do it because it helps you to learn how to, how to obey your God, especially you two. <laughs> My daughter gave me an awesome look just then. It says this, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what we know in this third application point to be a hearer and a doer is being a doer of the word brings stability. It guards against deception. It brings blessing, and as we've talked about the last two weeks, it proves your faith. James goes on to say, you say you have faith but not works? I'll prove my faith by my works, by what I do because of what I've heard. And number four application point, finally. Be encouraged in your evangelism by the realities that we've seen in Romans. Every one of you are called to evangelism. You might think, well, that's just something that maybe evangelists do. The lingo gets confusing. We've preached about that before. But everyone in here is supposed to care about the fact that there are people around here who do not have the gift of righteousness from Christ. And the only way they'll have it is by hearing so that they can hear and do and receive in faith the gift of Christ's righteousness. So we live in a, a country that has all kinds of different beliefs, and everyone's allowed to have those beliefs. And so don't be ashamed of yours. Be encouraged by what we've seen in Romans in the way of evangelism that every one of us are called to. First, we learned in Romans chapter 1 that God has created all of creation in a way that what can be known about God is plain to everybody. God made this world <coughs> in such a way that like, there's a row of trees right outside of this building. 
Did you know that the Bible says God made those trees to be pleasing to your sight? You ever thought about that? Like he has thought, divine thought that went into that. And then as you look at the skies above and you look at the seasons and you look at the sun and the moon and the stars, things are revealed from them as they proclaim the glories of the God who put them in place. I love to sit with my children and look at the stars and say, hey, do you know why that one's still there? Because God's holding it in place. That's what scripture says. And then we do the thing y'all heard me talk about before where he says he, he holds all the stars in place and he's given them all a name. And so we're like, what do you think that one's name is? And we just go and say silly names. But it's an, it's an activity where we consider the glory of God because we can look around at creation and God says, I made all that. Like when you go hunting, oh, I, I, I want to say that it's a wonderfully good spiritual discipline because then I could go do it more. But when you go out there, you're out there and you're quiet and you're experiencing what's going on and you see just the wonder of all that's going on and the processes of nature and the sounds of nature and the smells of nature and all of it's proclaiming the goodness of our God who writes the law on our hearts and gives us access, the possibility to be saved through Christ. And he says, I made all the creation so that whoever you are, you can look at creation and know plain truths, not like crazy, like guarded, robed, cloaked things, plain truths about God. That's Romans 1. But second is what we find in Romans 2 today, that God has written his law on the hearts of everyone. Here's what that means. When you're sharing the gospel with someone and they seem to be against you, their heart is on your side to some degree. That's one of the best encouragements I found in evangelism because it often feels so futile. You'll share with someone, you'll share with a bunch of people, no one will take, no one will take the gospel You'll share with one person over and over, and they're just not interested. God, you told me to do this. Why isn't it working? He's like, no, don't. Don't view this as some futile endeavor. I have written my law on their hearts, so keep after it, because in some way that's hard to fully explain, their heart is on your side, though their words don't match that yet. There's possibility there. So be encouraged to continue to move forward in your evangelism. There's never been anyone who just doesn't get the gospel. Only those who reject it and receive it. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So don't be ashamed of it. That's how Paul started this letter. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he's explaining it in these verses. Don't become dry and unexpected in the ability that people can change. Don't view kingdom work as futile. God has given everybody the ability to know him, and he sends you, the church, into the world to make disciples of all nations. So application point number four, be encouraged in your evangelism, because sometimes you think, <coughs> well, I'm just going to show up, and we got to start this work from square one. No, no, no. You will never share the gospel with someone where God has not already done a work in their hearts of some sort and surrounded them by a creation that speaks of his goodness. You're continuing in what God is doing. You're not showing up where God's been absent you're not showing up where God's been aloof and distant and disconnected. You're showing up and having a conversation with someone who has already been greatly affected by God, whether they know it or not. So be encouraged and continue to share the gospel and don't be ashamed of it in a culture that wants you to be ashamed of it. 